Possibly the most famous prophet in history is Nostradamus. The French astrologer lived in the 16th century and wrote lengthy poetry supposedly predicting things to come. Every year his cryptic verses are seized upon by journalists looking to fill column inches and mystics fearing the end of times. If Nostradamus penned something that hits reasonably close to major events, his esteem grows. If he misses, well, what does he care now? But there are businesses out there that actually do have to predict the future. They have to guess how individuals and society will behave five or ten years into the future. They can look at behavioural trends, industry preferences, but ultimately a lot can happen in ten years. And the people making these predictions are in charge of hundreds of millions of pounds. Their decisions carve out the built environment and sculpt the skylines of cities. If they get the decisions they make right, they can make money, yes, but more than that, they can spark new relationships, shape companies, and affect the work of tens of thousands. If you want to meet someone who truly has to predict the future, find someone who's asked to design a skyscraper. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. In this episode, we have partnered with WSP in the UK to talk about one of the latest additions to the London skyline. The building is 22 Bishopsgate. It takes its place among the Gherkin, the Cheese Grater and the Walkie Talkie. But although at 278 metres, it is the tallest building in the City of London, and the second tallest in Western Europe after the Shard, which lies just to the south of the River Thames. It doesn't have an eccentric nickname, at least not yet. And there's a good reason for that. Whereas these other weird buildings are visually bizarre, 22 just isn't. Although 22 looks good from the outside, the reason it's interesting isn't how it appears from a distance. The reason 22 is sparking conversation is what's going on on the inside, what it's like to work and spend time in the building, and how its developers wholly predicted what people would need from a post-COVID office up to 10 years before the pandemic. Which is how long it takes to build a skyscraper. And once it's with us, it's with us almost forever. All of that, plus its unconventional birth from the unfinished remains of a skyscraper that made a prediction of its own. A prediction that it lost when the Great Recession hit. The people who have to predict the future of the built environment come from diverse backgrounds and bring a range of skills. To make 22 Bishopsgate happen required a team of thousands. We can't bring them all into a single podcast, but this episode will be built on foundations provided by a developer, a structural engineer, an architect, and a mechanical and electrical engineer. First, we need to get a handle on the background of 22 Bishopsgate, and for that we need to meet our developer. And for him, an interest in how things worked started in childhood. I was the person who would, whenever I was given something, I'd probably take it apart and put it back together again. And I always wanted to see how something worked. So when I went to technical college, I went and studied building which was a quite 
reasonably practical or you could certainly see that what you were learning and how you, what you were learning, how it was put into practice. This is Paul Hargreaves. He is the construction director for Lipton Rogers. When I finished my building course, it was the height of the recession back in the 80s. And so I went off to Bristol University and studied construction management, which was a, you know three years there. And then we hit another recession as well, believe it or not. So that wasn't great. Paul clawed his way into industry despite the recessions, but these rapid economic shifts left him with an appreciation for how quickly things can change. He worked on a number of projects at Imperial College, the Royal Opera House, the first Apple store in Europe, and the Nokia HQ during the mobile company's heyday, but never a tall building. And when 22 Bishopsgate came along, he thought, well, it's a nice opportunity. You know, it was that right time in my career that I thought, well, let's let's have a go. I've never built a, the tallest building I built was about 17, 18 storeys. So why not go for a 62 storey building? Back in 2012, Paul and Lipton Rogers had become aware of a stalled project in the city of London called Pinnacle. The previous Pinnacle project had a consortium of about 80 funders who were all putting money in to fund the development. And the project was hemorrhaging money they needed to go back and ask the consortium for more money. And when you're having to ask 80 people for money, you don't need many to say, sorry, no, enough's enough for the project to fall over. So it, it, it fell over uh, and it wasn't going anywhere. So it laid a dormant site for, you know, three or four years. The problem was that Pinnacle had been conceived in a different time, before the global financial crisis. Design was completed in 2005 and foundation construction began in 2006. But the cruel calculus of the post-recession era made the building unviable. Pinnacle was uh, certainly a, you know, a beautiful building, but a building of its time. Remember the slew of London skyscrapers named after recognisable objects? Buildings were getting names uh, and they were all very nice buildings, all lovely buildings, very sculptural. But... You know, they were buildings of their time and the Pinnacle was a, a lovely building. But the problem we had with the Pinnacle is that it was very much a, a, an art form. And to give you an idea, every single pane of glass in the Pinnacle was a different size. And that what comes with that is huge cost. Uh, you know, there is no repetition at all. It also had quite a, a, a strange core which meant there were transfers. So you, you literally had to go up a lift, transfer to another lift to get to the top of the building. And it meant the floor plates were quite very irregular. And not really what people wanted from a practicality point of view, but again, undeniably a work of art. So when we started looking at it, we, we thought, well, we've got to find a much more economic way to, to make this building work. Conventional wisdom might have told Paul and Lipton Rogers to overreact to the changes of the financial crisis, to design a building for pure economy, maximum floor space, total financial efficiency. But they didn't. They took a moment and called in more expertise. They contacted Despina Katsikakis, who worked for the commercial real estate agent Cushman Wakefield. 
and we asked her, you know, what, where do you think are the best buildings in the world at the moment? Who's, who's out there about the future of buildings and offices and what people want? She said, you've got to come over to Australia and have a look at what they're doing in Sydney uh, and Melbourne. The big banks and other companies were looking after their staff, putting people first. So there was a big research trip out to Australia to look at what was going on. They were building towers, but they were putting in lots of amenities. And this is where we got our vision for creating 22 and making it a vertical village. And if you were to go to uh, 22 Bishopsgate, uh, potentially could have 12,000 people in the building. Uh, sort of unlikely, but more like sort of uh, generally, you know, about 8,000 people during a normal day in the building. Well, 8,000 people is, um, you know, it's a small village. Well, small town, a village. And in a village or town, you would have, you sort of have your, your town hall. You might have your, your, your village green, but you'll have, you'll have your local shop. You'll have a restaurant. You'll have, you know, food outlets, your coffee shop. You'll have lots of amenities to serve the community. And that's where we got the idea of designing a building that had lots of amenities to serve the occupants of the building. So, and, and the way that the building ended up being designed lent itself to some spare spaces within the building that we felt that we could use and return to the occupants of the building. So not a knee jerk to maximize rentable area, but make 22 Bishopsgate a comfortable place to be with extra facilities that could be rented to companies or used by employees at will. A departure from prioritising aesthetics, but completely swerving away from a grim utilitarianism. A sort of affordable workspace. And then within there, we've put in spaces to be able to give presentations and lectures. So some, you know, bleached seating, maker spaces. You could have, you know, the best immersive VC conferencing room or editing suites. Stuff that tenants may want to use periodically, but might not want to spend uh, or put, you know, the outlay of creating a, a really great space in their offices where they only use it once a year. As well as this, on various floors, they also built restaurants, viewing galleries, gyms, wellness centres, filling the structure with amenities like they learned in Australia. The winds of chance blew again and the global pandemic emerged in early 2020. All of a sudden, the destination office became the zeitgeist of what an office should be. Amenities, a desirable meeting location, and rentable facilities all became critical to businesses. But back in the early to mid 2010s, to do all of this required increasing the available area of the building by 30% compared to that which would have been offered by Pinnacle. It required immediate buy-in from the new consortium, ahead of planning permission being granted by the city. And on top of this, the foundations for Pinnacle had already been built. Grinding and digging them out would be an incredible waste in a world growing ever more carbon conscious. The next character in this story needs to be a structural engineer. 
So I was born in Peru and uh, I grew up in different construction sites because my father is a civil engineer. So my childhood was basically us traveling across the country and working on roads and bridges and power stations and canals. So it was not really an option. <laughs> it was quite an easy choice. This is Diego Padilla Phillips, technical director for WSP in the UK and our structural engineer. And when the time came to, to choose a career, um, I had two options. The two things that I liked the most were engineering and art. I chose engineering, but I always felt connected to, 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 to art. And, and I found that structural engineering is, in, in my opinion, a very creative, a very artistic side of, of civil engineering. Then in 2007, a major earthquake struck Peru's capital city, Lima. And I was there in Lima and I experienced that ground movement and, and it motivated me to, to, to study something related to, to seismic engineering. So I found a master's in, in, in the UK at UCL and I, and, and I came to do a master's in seismic engineering and disaster management and, and the rest is history. The UK is not known for its seismicity, but my background in, in seismic engineering has given me a really good understanding of, of dynamics and, and all buildings move. Depends what makes them move. If in, in the UK, for example, it is the wind. The wind pushes them and makes them move, makes them sway. In a seismic region, it is the ground that shakes. It results in a movement and forces. So in the end, building dynamics are, are universal. So it's giving me that really good understanding of dynamics. Diego joined WSP in May 2014, and on the 21st of December, just before Christmas, he was presented the problem of how to balance the loads of a bigger building on an already built foundation. And then when we saw the, the magnitude of the column forces, we realised this is, this is something big. The, the, the challenge was, how do we... How do we locate these new column forces into this existing capacity and find some transfer strategies? When we read the column forces, we thought this is something big. And, and it was actually a, mer a Christmas present. <laughs> and then it, it, it changed the rest of my career forever. Because Diego spent the next five years working on the most challenging foundations of his career. So we started with an existing three-storey basement, all buried underground, but also a, a partial core. The, the old pinnacle core was built up to level nine. That's what we inherited. The core was to be demolished, which was a small part of the, of the existing structure. And then the entire basement was to be retained as much as possible. Because when you, when, when, when you have existing structures, what you try to do is to reuse that capacity. That way you save on materials, time possibly, but also in, in, in what is currently the most important factor, which is carbon emissions. 
the less you build, the less carbon emissions you generate. So we have three stories of basement. They were, they were designed for another tower. They had capacity and uh, the columns of, were, of the pinnacle. So the columns were in different positions to those of the new building to be proposed. Uh, and, and the brief was to retain as much as we could, keep as much as we could. So not only from an engineering point of view, but also from an architectural point of view, how does the design team reuse the existing basement geometry to adapt to the new needs of a bigger and different building? The Pinnacle building had a unique spiral shape and a perimeter diagrid, which is a framework of diagonally intersecting metal, concrete or, or wooden beams that is used in the construction of buildings and roofs. So the perimeter columns had a special spacing, but also had very large capacity because they were supporting the stability forces of the, of the tower. So when you look at a plan, you had some capacity in the center, because it had a small concrete core, and then columns around the perimeter in, a, in an elliptical sort of shape, which, which, which was there because of the shape the, the pinnacle had. Ideally, we, we would need to, re, to, to locate the new columns where the existing were, so that we could utilize all of our capacity. Now, the floor plate of, um, of 22 Bishop's Gate, trying to optimize the use of the site, was different, was bigger, was larger. So we had to coordinate with the architect where to place the new columns so, so that they were as close as possible to the existing pinnacle columns in the basement. And in some cases, this was possible. In some cases, this was a real challenge. So they had to create a transition level over several stories. And the smoother that transition, the, uh, the better it is in terms of load transfer. So we used between levels three and eight to transition from, from, from the, the, the basement positions to the superstructure positions gradually in a way of inclining the columns in or out to meet them. And the reason why it was from level three and up is because I believe the intention for the ground floor ground to three was to have fully vertical columns so that they looked as as impressively as they look right now being finished like a nice row of massive columns along along the pavement straight vertical columns and then transition gradually into the uh, into the final positions in structural engineering inclined columns are the most efficient way to transfer force from one point to another but when you incline a column you generate a horizontal force. So I normally explain this with, with a pen or a pencil. And I say, if you push this pencil vertically with your two hands, the forces are all vertical. Brilliant. Now, put that on a table and then push it down. It's all vertical. Now, incline the pencil a little bit. And if you push it down, what happens? It tries to slide, <laughs> you see? So somewhere, it has to be restrained at the bottom and at the top to stop that from sliding. And the same happens in a, in, in a building. If I have an inclined column, the forces are coming down, but we're generating mega horizontal forces somewhere. Now, the more inclined, the bigger the forces. The, the less inclined, 
the smaller forces. So if we incline between level 3 and level 8, that's 5 levels, then the forces are doable. Then those horizontal forces have to travel through the, uh, the existing floor plate into the elements which resist the horizontal forces in a building, which in this case is the concrete core. The core where all the lifts are, where all the services are. The core of any tall building is a really strong structure, providing lateral stability to the building, capable of holding those strong horizontal forces together. They travel into the core and down through the floor. In some cases, if these forces are too big, it goes through additional steel elements embedded within the slab back into the core, so that you're holding that in place. And the same happens in the basement. Whenever we have inclined columns, we are resisting these horizontal forces within the basement box with all the other elements. In some cases, we also needed bigger transfer structures. In some cases, it was impossible to just have inclined columns, so we have actually a deep beam or a deep truss. And these, 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 these mega transfers, what they do is they bring the forces from one position to where the capacity really is. And in some cases, these are hidden within the, within the architecture. In the basement, they have a hidden beam that's nearly four meters deep. So it's basically a wall and, and it's hidden within a floor, within a plant room so that it's not seen. But there is a mega structural element there transferring that. And, and one of the reasons, the reasons why we couldn't have um, an inclined column or a column going through is because below that space we had uh, a turning table for the waste management lorries to go into the basement and rotate uh, and that was the only place where it could go to make sure that so, that, so, so in this case for me that was fascinating to understand because it was the waste management strategy that was driving the structure. The relatively small footprint of a skyscraper and all of the disciplines that need to work together means that each team needs to work around the needs of their colleagues. It's a delicate ballet and our next dancer is an expert in m and &E fit-out. There was definitely engineering in the family. Uh, my, my father was a civil engineer and then worked in construction as a, as a contractor and then later lecturing in construction management. So I guess I can't deny that that didn't have any influence. This is David Healy, mechanical and electrical engineer, one of Diego's colleagues at WSP in the UK. And I, I think what I liked about engineering at, at that stage in my life was that, you know, there were so many options open to you because you can kind of do almost anything with an engineering degree. And, um, you know, I think my someone make, makes a point that, you know, a lot of the CEOs of companies started off as engineers. So I think, I think it's good, good kind of training. David is responsible for, well, the lungs and life of the building, which is more effort than normal given all of the amenities and features that the developers wanted. We call ourselves building services or MEP engineers. M being mechanical, E being electrical, and, and P being plumbing or, or public health. So I'll sort of take it in order. On the mechanical side, we look to maintain comfortable conditions in the building. 
um, so that's ventilating the spaces with fresh air, making sure that they're heated and cooled. And what that means from a plant perspective is generally we'll have, on a building like this, we'll have large chillers generally in the basement. Those will pump the chilled water around to all the, the occupied floors so they can get their cooling from that, from that system. And then we also need to get rid of all that all the heat that um, they put back into the system. And generally that's done by cooling towers at the top of the building. You know, so you can imagine there that um, at some point we're taking the whole load for the building and connecting the chillers in the basement and the cooling towers on the roof. So you could, you know, you get pipe work that's just about, you can just about hug it. We then got a large heating system. So at the time we designed 22 Bishopsgate, um, it was gas-fired boilers. This is possibly the only change David said would be made if they were designing the building now. An electric heating system in 2022 looks more future-proof because the electricity grid is decarbonising as part of the UK's route to net zero. But this is the nature of designing a building for a world that does not yet exist. Gas-fired boilers and that distributes the heating um, throughout the building. And then the ventilation on, on this building is done by uh, what we call air handling units. And if you can imagine some double-decker buses parked partway up your building, that gives you an idea of the scale of these units, um, you know, because we're moving enough air around for 12,000 people. So there's some um, pretty big demands on, on, the, on the space. So those are key mechanical systems. Electrically, there are uh, large transformers in the uh, bottom of the building and they take the high voltage that we get from the utility in the street and they drop it down to 400 volts through a whole other series of transformers. And because we're tenants in a building like this, we're always really interested in in the resilience. So they want to be able to keep their operations going, even if there's a fault somewhere in the system. And we've got a lot of duplication on, on the electrical infrastructure to keep that going. Another key part of the electrical infrastructure is having standby generators at the top of the building to keep everything going in the case of an outage. And the, the other thing you get from the generator system is we've, we've got a lot of life safety systems. So in a, in a tall building, we'll have things like sprinklers. Um, we'll be doing smoke extract from the basement. We'll be pressurizing the stairs um, with air so that if there is a fire anywhere, it keeps them clear of smoke. Um, and then there's fire detection and alarm systems and, and all the rest of it. So. Yeah, there's a, not only do we need to consider how things work on a day-to-day -day basis, but we need to work out what happens if there's a fire. And then um, that's probably one of the most interesting parts of the, of the whole design and subject to a lot of scrutiny. But actually, it kind of sits there in the background and hopefully people never know it's there. The building also uses lifts for emergency egress in the event of a fire. This is because stairs in tall buildings are a serious obstacle for the mobility of impaired or the elderly. How 22 Bishopsgate achieved this is fascinating, and the subject of one of the first ever episodes of Engineering Matters. See the episode we released on the 21st of August 2018, titled, In the Event of Fire, Use the Lift. We've linked to it in our show notes. 
Last but not least is plumbing, getting fresh water around the building for occupants, for the restrooms and for other uses around the building. But then also providing drainage and, you know, trying to recycle water where appropriate and dealing with rainwater from, um, from the top of the building and, and getting that all the way down. And, you know, as you can imagine in a, in a tall building, one of the key challenges is trying to keep the core of the building where all the lifts and the stairs and the services distribute as tight as possible. So we're always looking at ways of optimizing all those different systems to minimize the impact. From an M&E point of view, but also a challenge for Diego's structural design, is that there is a lot more competition for basement space in a modern skyscraper. And we have a building that was sort of 50% bigger. So we started off by talking about all the plant that we're going to need. And some of that would ideally have been in the basement. But when you put a, a bigger building on the same basement, then that plant all gets a bit bigger. So on its own, you know, that makes the basement a lot more constrained. A larger building required larger areas for deliveries. Cycling's more popular, so cycle storage and the showers that go with that also increase compared with the previous design. So a lot of the plant that would normally go in the basement gets kicked upwards to the plant floors that are spaced higher up in the building, which in turn competes with restaurants and other spaces. We get a bit of competition with the amenities. We try and move stuff a bit more up and we kind of, we kept on going until we, uh, we reached the top of the building. And at the top of the building, the designers needed to start worrying about not encroaching into the flight path of London City Airport. So it was a competitive environment that required coordination between all of the sections. And the artistry of how it all hangs together depends on the architect. Well, I'm American, so, you know, not from these shores. But I, my, my parents were military, we moved every three to four years. It was, you know, different places, different things. That's probably what brings me to London is we always, we always change places and change things. And I find that interesting and, and exciting, even though I've actually lived here longer than I've lived anywhere. But I, I knew I liked creative things. My dad is an engineer, you know, it was like, what can I do that is creative, but also has some, you know, it's not just fluffy stuff. And so that, that's where I started thinking towards architecture eons and eons ago. This is Amy Holtz from PLP Architecture. She's noticed a number of the features of 22 appearing in buildings more recently. I think the, the provision of shared amenities and things that make a, bring a building beyond just an office building is for sure you see projects picking up on these things. At the time when they started developing the site 10 odd years ago, you needed to maximize area post-recession. But they, they saw this, this spot in the market that if you focus on the people and the retention of staff, which the big businesses want to do, then they need to have great spaces to bring them into. And these amenities and the quality of space that 22 provides helps them do that. Because we don't, you know, it's not that we, you know, 62 story building, we didn't pinch every millimeter in order to get more floors on there. We have three meter clear throughout the office plate with the, the ceiling stepping up to 3.2 at the facades. And that brings in a huge amount more daylight into the space and just gives the perception 
of taller, more generous faces for the entire office space. The facade of 22 Bishop's Gate is another feature that was also ahead of its time. Amy came to London in 2004 and immediately took up a Master's in Environmental Design. It's an area she's worked in ever since and is now Head of Sustainability at PLP. In all that time, there's been a growing awareness of environmental issues. But when 22 was being designed, industry's laser focus on net zero had not yet arrived. Externally, we wanted the, the building to behave almost like a chameleon on the skyline. The, the facade, kind of, if you're looking at it through the day, it changes in response to the light levels or the viewing angle and the surrounding environment. So often you can see it go from transparent to milky white to reflecting all of the clouds. And it's not that those are all different facade types. It's that we carefully crafted the angle and the clarity of the glass so that it, it did become that chameleon. The facade system is what's known as a closed cavity facade, which has three panes of glass. Two are double glazed, then there is a cavity, then a third pane. The cavity is pressurized and contains an automated blind. As the sun's energy hits the building, initially some radiation is reflected from the outer face of the external glazing. A reduced amount penetrates into the cavity, where it's reflected back out by the blinds or absorbed, heating the air in the cavity that then re-radiates the heat back out. The inner double glazing with a low E coating insulates the hot cavity from the office inside and further reflects the energy back to the outside. Finally, a small amount of the solar energy will make it into the building. This is about 10% of the total when the blinds are fully closed. This all gives the building great insulation in winter, but in summer the blinds are really clever. They use a geometrical model of the surrounding buildings and sensors to detect the position and intensity of the sun. It then makes an intelligent decision as to when it should deploy the blinds. So if there are clouds already blocking the sun from the facade, it knows that it doesn't need to block the heat. Without all of this, it's necessary to design a darker facade, resulting in a gloomier office environment. That's not just for fun because we thought it would look nice. It's also performing something and it's also helping to make the building better for the people within it, as well as something special when you're seeing it from afar. It's a slightly reflective glass that we've wrapped around the facade and it, in a way it further accentuates the varied and dynamic appearance of the facade. The first thing people see in a large building is often a grand entrance hall. But for 22, the team was keen to have something on a more human scale. It's the civic face of the building. We go in it, it's a crafted and man-made juxtaposition to the glass and steel tower above. So you get above level three, the level three market, we have a cornice line created by this concrete and glass canopy that has intermittent artwork by Alexander Veloshenko along that run. But we worked quite carefully to make sure that the base felt human, that it didn't feel like this tower, that it, it brought you, because you see the tower from a distance and it's a special thing and, it, and the, the glass is working incredibly hard and the facets are working and, and everything is creating this, this, whole, this whole element 
But as you walk up at Pedestrian Skill, there's a different experience. You don't see that tower as you're walking down Threadneedle and you get closer and you, you approach it. You see, you see the lobby, you see this, this really civic space. And, and it's designed to be open to the public to walk through. It's, it's a, um, in a way it serves as an, a changing art gallery. They haven't just plastered the entire building in stone because that's what you do. They didn't want to have a traditional entrance hall. And if you walk down Bishopsgate, you feel that. You see people walking along and stopping and looking and, and looking. And they look up at the canopy and they look in at the artwork. And, and I think they want to go in. Um, I mean, I know I want to go in. <laughs> the success of a major building development such as 22 rests on whether it has accurately assessed and predicted the future needs of its tenants. So what does our developer think of how well 22 does in a post-pandemic world, considering project planning began years before? Yeah, I think we were, we were very fortunate. I think we did all this research and we, were, and we like to push things a bit as well. And when we, we realized very early on that, you know, when you're building a building, like 22, huge building. The build program is, I don't know, roughly four or five years. So you're designing a building that has to be at the forefront of the market that's effectively your design is five years old. So you've got a real challenge. So you've, you're building a big building, but you've got to competing against that smaller building that's maybe, you know, a, a fifth of the size but their design is only probably three years old, but yours is five. So you've got to be where they are as well, because that's going to be your competition. So what do you do? So you have to be quite brave, but you've got to do your research. So we did lots of, lots of research. And where we were, I think we were lucky is that we decided to push technology hard. They gauged the trajectory of the technology of the time. And financial technology companies have become a major force in the city. And we needed to create a building that, that they would want to be in. So the one big thing that we did, and it was very brave, I suppose, in doing it, is we, we put in facial recognition um, throughout as an entry to the building. You know, we wanted to make getting into a building as easy as possible. I mean, it's very easy to see that, you know, when you walk into an office, you might have gone to grab a coffee before you go in there. So you've got a bag in your hand, you've got a cup of coffee in your hand, and you might have your mobile phone wedged under your, or your ear pods in, whatever, on being on the phone. And then to walk up to a barrier and have to fumble around for a pass, that a pass that could have been handed to anybody, um, might not be your pass and walk through some barriers and get in was always going to be a bit of a challenge. So let's make it easy. So we thought, well, facial recognition. Entry to a building without physical contact with any surfaces or interaction with another person. It turned out to be exactly what people needed during the pandemic. Most people, I'd say, you know, the vast majority are happy to sign up to it. You're, everyone's so used to it. It's on everybody's phone now. You just use the technology everywhere. You know, you do it for your banking, you do it for, you know, looking at your phone. So to walk into a building and not have to worry about it and you just walk through the barrier is brilliant. So that was great. Added to this all of the amenities, the clever structural engineering, the foundation reuse, the smart facade and the innovative M&D. A 
and you have a building that truly predicted the future. So here's another prediction. As we as a society become more concerned with embodied carbon, buildings of the future will have to reuse existing structures to an even greater extent. With no more undeveloped land in London and the centres of major other cities, it's a prediction you can rely on far more than Nostradamus. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Bernadette Ballantyne. Sound Engineering by Ross McPherson. Series Supervision by John Young. And our own visionary prophet is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner WSP. And thanks also to our guests from Lipton Rogers and from PLP Architecture. And thank you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn. And don't forget to check out our website and sign up to our newsletter for the latest engineering announcements and developments from around the world.